reminded and assured of the promises of the gospel that those who turn to Jesus Christ, the Savior whom God has sent, have the forgiveness of their sins and may worship God with a free and a good conscience because your sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. That's our hope then and our comfort as we open the word of God to to hear from him and as we respond in worship today. Having then heard God's good promises, let's now turn to the word of God that he would speak to us Our scripture reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 13. Second Kings 13, we'll begin in verse 1. In the twenty-third year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned seventeen years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen, and ten chariots, and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them, and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did, and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, he's also known as Joash, Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was going to die... Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. 
And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, the band, now bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So far, the reading of the word of God. Our scripture text that we do want to focus on is 2 Kings 13, the same chapter, uh, the same text that we have just read. You may be helped by having your Bibles open, not least to be able to distinguish between all the Joashes, Jehoashes, and Jehoahazes uh, that you find there. So if you need to keep that straight, Uh, Keep your chapter open before you. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, probably the the verses that you're most intrigued about, uh, the verses that grab our attention from this chapter more than anything else, are verses 20 and 21. That little story that's just thrown in there towards the end of the chapter about this man whose body is thrown into the tomb of Elisha, touches his bones, and comes to life again. We wonder, what do we do when we find stories like that in the Bible? I was reading in the BBC uh, just a few months ago uh, an article about this surprisingly high number uh, of, of recent instances in which bodies have mysteriously just woken up in, in cold storage in, in the morgue. I don't want to creep you out, uh, but, but it's happened a lot in, in recent times. For some reason, it happens particularly often in, in South Africa. Uh, I don't know why. I suspect corruption somewhere in there. Uh, But in in each of these cases, the the interesting fact was the people were certified as deceased by doctors. In one case, uh, there were three doctors that had certified the person as deceased. And and yet a few days later, he woke up in the morgue. Well, whatever is happening in those cases, that is not what happened here in our text uh, with Elisha. Here, the, the text says the source of that new life was the bones of the dead prophets. But we ask ourselves, what does that mean? Uh, what are we supposed to learn from that? Roman Catholics point to this as, as a biblical basis for their practice. Uh, you think about it, it almost makes sense. Their practice of venerating relics like the bodies of, of saints, as, as Roman Catholics have historically done, or pieces of, of the cross. I'm told you could make several hundred crosses from all the pieces of the cross that are, are, uh, uh, that, that are venerated. 
But nonetheless, they, they base this as, as a scriptural basis for, they cite this as a scriptural basis for that practice. If Elisha's bones could raise someone from the dead, why couldn't I go make a pilgrimage to see the Shroud of Turin in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Italy? Or, or why couldn't I uh, go and, and venerate the umbilical cord of, of the Lord Jesus uh, in the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran? Uh, they do these things and they say this is a scriptural example of the same thing. Well, let me start then by, by just pointing out the obvious that nobody in Israel was doing that sort of thing uh, that the Roman Catholics now try to justify by citing a verse like this. Uh, the people here just happened to throw a body into the tomb of Elisha. And the only reason they did so was because there was a band of Moabite thugs who were about to kill them, and they just needed somewhere to throw it so they could, so they could run. They didn't have time for a proper burial. It, it wasn't a pilgrimage. They weren't there to, to kiss the bones of Elisha. They, they didn't set up a shrine there. It was just a good spot to throw a dead man's body. Uh, nor do we read of them ever setting up some shrine there afterwards. Uh, even afterwards, that place was still just ignored. They don't know, even today, where Elisha was buried. Uh, and, and in fact, nowhere, nowhere in Scripture do you find the sort of veneration, the sort of shrines, uh, veneration of bodies of saints that you find in Roman Catholicism or in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, the attempt to justify that by appealing to verses like this uh, is what uh, people typically call an, an a priori fallacy, uh, which is you have a predetermined doctrine that came about for different reasons, and then you go back and find whatever reason you can justify to have it. Uh, that's, that's not how you should be dealing with Scripture. But it's still worth asking then, what did happen on that day, and what are we supposed to learn from it? Well, to answer that, we need to first understand the bigger picture of what's going on in this whole chapter, uh, the larger story here. Now, this chapter is, uh, you can assume that it's, it's significant simply by virtue of the fact that Elisha, the greatest prophet who ever lived in the Old Testament, that Elisha died in, in this chapter. And in that way, it, it brings to a close an era in the life of Israel. Elijah and Elisha were the greatest prophets that ever lived in Israel. No greater prophets came before. No greater prophets ever came after. And they had a huge impact in the life of Israel uh, all the way back since the time of Ahab and Jezebel. You, if you think back to those early chapters of 1 Kings, the influence that Elijah had even on Ahab and Jezebel, and certainly on the people uh, of Israel as a whole. Uh, it was under their influence that the northern kingdom remained, at least in name, a, a Yahweh-worshipping kingdom. Uh, it's, it's their fault that you get these really confusing names like Jehoash, Jehoahaz, uh, all these other, uh, Joash and, and all Jehoram, uh, all, these, all these Yahweh names, these names that start with Jah, which is in, in Hebrew a reference to the name of Yahweh. That's because of the work of Elijah and Elisha, that this kingdom remained a kingdom where Yahweh, at least in name, was worshipped. 
Uh, so we, we want to be careful here because it's very easy to read the evaluations of the kings in the northern kingdom. And every single one of them, down to the last man, it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's very easy for us to read that and conclude from that that these kings were just as wicked as they could possibly be. Uh, But that's not the case. Uh, They did evil, but most oftentimes when, when, when it cites that, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, it refers to the practice of, of worshiping God through these golden calves that Jeroboam had set up. Uh, in many of their reigns for the rest of, uh, of, uh, of their lives, the rest of their reigns, they did many things that were actually right. Uh, Elijah and especially Elisha had great influence on the kings of Israel. Uh, you often find Elisha speaking in the courtroom of the king or gathered together with the elders of, of the people. Uh, on many occasions, Elisha had delivered uh, Israel's kings from foreign armies. Uh, and the kings themselves also recognized how, how precious, how important these prophets were to them. That's why you find Jehoash in this chapter, in, in verse 14, weeping at the bedside of Elisha, crying out, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He recognizes that the presence of God's prophet is more important, more powerful than many chariots and horsemen. So he says, this, this man is our chariots and our horsemen. And he's weeping at the fact that this man is about to die. Now, if you remember, those were the very same words that Elisha himself, as a young man, had spoken to Elijah When Elijah was taken up in that whirlwind, uh, Elisha had said to him, The chariots, uh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Well, now it's his time to go. And you see, the kings of Israel themselves recognize that same truth about Elisha. So you see, even a transformation in Israel. You didn't see kings when Elijah left. You didn't see the kings weeping over him. In fact, they were probably kind of glad to see him go. Uh, when it's Elisha's time to go, uh, they're, they're actually weeping uh, at his loss. He, he's genuinely distressed. So that's, that's a big dynamic that we want to pay attention to in this chapter. It's the close of an era. It's the changing of the times. The greatest prophet who ever lived is about to die, and things are going to be different in the next chapters without him. A second big picture reality we want to pay attention to here is the ongoing erosion and decimation of the power and significance of Israel. Remember, Israel, during the time of Solomon, was was a great kingdom. You had the Queen of Sheba coming from far, far away just to marvel at the greatness of that kingdom. Well, Israel is no longer the power that it once was. Its borders have been eroded by Hazael and by by Jehu, and that has taken its toll. Uh, verse 7, it says, there, there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Things have changed. Uh, this is something you can imagine if you're living in Israel, especially as an older person, you're used to your country being a significant player in world affairs. Well, no longer. Uh, they're a small and mostly powerless country. And, and that dynamic was go- is going to keep on changing in Israel. 
this chapter here takes place somewhere around 800 BC, uh, which was only at the very beginning of the rise of the great superpowers uh, of the ancient world. Uh, the great world empire, Assyria, and don't confuse that with Syria. So Syria is the little country right to the north of Israel, uh, ruled by Hazael. Uh, that's Israel's great foe for many centuries already, uh, but they're still not a very significant uh, empire. Assyria, out in Babylon area, is a huge world empire, and, and at this, in this time was just getting uh, on its feet. It was becoming more powerful every year, and, and Jehoash is the first king in Israel to pay tribute to this empire. That's how they worked. They would dominate uh, as many countries as they could and receive tribute from them. Uh, In fact, archaeologists have found uh, records on clay tablets from Assyria that record the tribute that Jehoash of Samaria paid to Adad-Nirari, who was the emperor of Assyria. Uh, So that's a big dynamic. That's changing. Israel used to be the nation of God, a powerful, uh, a powerful empire in its own right. It is no longer. It is a small player dominated by other ungodly world empires. Uh, finally, last, the last big picture dynamic to pay attention to is the ongoing pattern of idolatry in the kingdom of Israel that's not just not getting better, it's actually getting worse. Uh, that has never gone away, even under the influence of Elijah and Elisha. You almost get the impression that it's this unstoppable force that Elijah and then Elisha stopped with all their might and held it off. But now that they're gone, that force is going to come powerfully over Israel. Uh, And so you do see already the same old refrain in verse 2 for Jehoahaz, in verse 11 for for Jehoash. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Well, that, that matters. That's a clue to where things are going because though God has held off judgment for a time, he will not hold it off forever. If you keep hearing this, this refrain, those are like footsteps headed towards a final judgment. And we're getting closer and closer now with every year. Uh, so those, those three big picture dynamics we want to pay attention to. The, the changing of the times with the loss of Elijah and Elisha. The changing of the times with respect to Israel's power. And the ongoing and now worsening pattern of idolatry. Uh, so with those big picture uh, dynamics on our mind, what could we learn from this chapter? Well, Perhaps the most striking thing is not this this mysterious raising of of the man at the bones of Elisha, but the fact that for the first time, the first time in the book of Kings, uh, with one sort of exception, uh, which I'll I'll mention in a moment, other, other than that, for the first time, God actually goes out of his way to point out in the text his patience and his mercy towards Israel. It's the first time you read about that uh, to, to the northern tribes. Now, God has mentioned that many times with the southern tribes, that God remembered his promise to David, uh, did not ex- exterminate the kings, etc. But with the northern kingdom, we haven't read about that until now. Uh, so, as you open your chapter, that might not jump out, of you, out at you as you read about God's mercy. But if you've been reading this book from chapter 1 of 1 Kings all the way till now, that would jump out at you. You say, whoa. 
Suddenly, God wants us to know He cares about these northern ten tribes. And that's in verses 4 through 6, and then again in verse 23. Uh, So in verses 4 to 6, the kingdom of Israel under Jehoahaz, uh, it it talks about how it's just being eaten away by Hazael. If you remember Hazael, that was from chapters 9 and 10, uh, the the extremely uh, evil and cruel king of of Syria, who was anointed, uh, of all people, by Elisha, the prophet of God. Uh, and, and he started even, if you remember that incident, when Elisha anointed him, he was weeping, thinking of all the evil that, that Hazael was going to do. Well, that evil starts happening in this chapter. Uh, verse 3, it says, The anger, anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of his son, Ben-Hadad. And then here, for, for what, what is almost the first time, uh, God finds it necessary to remind us of his compassion for these northern ten tribes. In verse 4, uh, then, then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Uh, that's, that's an amazing thing to hear uh, from God. The language here is actually the exact same language uh, that, that you'll find in Exodus chapter 2, where the Lord heard the cries of his people Israel in Egypt uh, and, and had compassion. He saw the oppression and their suffering. And, and the thing that, that, that's especially striking about that in this text uh, is, is that the Lord felt compassion on the northern kingdom of Israel in spite of the fact that nothing had changed with respect to their idolatry. It doesn't say Jehoahaz realized his his wrong, stopped worshipping the golden calves, or stopped worshipping the ashram, and and went and and obeyed God and worshipped Him. And then God felt compassion. It doesn't say that. It says God felt compassion, in fact, in spite of the fact that they did not leave their sin. Verse 5, The Lord gave Israel a Savior, so they escaped from the hands of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the, from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah, to pagan god, also remained in Samaria. That's what makes the compassion in this chapter really stand out. Uh, this, this compassion, it almost might remind you of the book of Judges, where you have that constant pattern. The people fell into idolatry. God sent someone to oppress them. They repented. They cried out to God. He had compassion and saved them. But it's not that pattern here. There's something different here, where in this case, there's no repentance. There's crying out to God, for sure, uh, and yet there's, there's no repentance. Uh, and so what we're meant to see here is, is the inexplicable mercy of God. It's not the understandable mercy, not the predictable mercy, the inexplicable, unexpected mercy of God. Uh, right now, when things have, have reached a point where they're worse in Israel than they've ever been before, and they're about to get only much, much worse, uh, we see that... Uh, that even as Elisha dies, God reminds us, I have not forgotten even my people in the northern kingdom of Israel, even though it's been hundreds of years since they've been without idols. Uh, So what we're meant to see here is the inexplicable mercy of God. 
Uh, the same is true in verse 23, and it's, it's in fact worded even more strongly, and it's even more surprising in verse 23. Uh, it says, The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and He turned toward them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He would not destroy them, nor has He cast them from His presence even until now. Uh, now, I don't know what, what the now is, that's mentioned there in verse 23. That's, that's whenever the time that this book was written, uh, the book of First and Second Kings. And, and the book of Second Kings records the fall and the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel and even the fall and exile of Judah a uh, hundred years later. And so that's the now. Sometime after that is the now from which the author says, the Lord would not destroy them, nor has He cast them from His presence even until now. God did not forget His people, even after, by all human appearances, they were gone. Uh, They didn't even exist anymore. Yet God remembered them. Uh, So... That's, that's, it's the first time where, where those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are brought back to the foreground. Now, there is, there is one other almost sort of time. Um, that's in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah was on Mount Carmel. Um, if you remember that big contest between uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and, and uh, Ahab and Baal... Uh, it says there that Elijah built an altar with 12 stones according to the 12 sons of Jacob, and then it adds in parentheses, with whom the Lord had made his covenant. Uh, so there's sort of an allusion to the covenant there in, in 1 Kings 18. But there's no explicit promise that God was remembering his people. Uh, and that matters. Uh, you find lots of these references with respect to Judah. Lots of times, almost every chapter, in fact, it, it points back to God remembers his promise to David. Uh, and yet to, to Israel, it's almost non-existent. But here God makes a point of, of highlighting that. Oh, why? Why does God do that? Uh, perhaps it's because as things are about to get much, much worse in Israel, now is the time where we need this reminder. Though things go bad, Yet God is faithful. Yet God remembers promises he's made to a people who don't even deserve those promises. Uh, Pretty soon, the kingdom of Israel is going to disappear into exile, and they never return. The kingdom of Judah, uh, a a small remnant from the kingdom of Judah returns, and and God uh, works through them and ultimately brings about the coming of Christ through them. Uh, But the kingdom of of Israel never returned. This is why people even still today refer to the lost tribes of the house of Israel. Uh, That's referring to these ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom. Uh, In the New Testament, when we read about Israel, we're only talking about Judah. Judah and Benjamin um, with some scattered descendants of of Levi. That's who we today refer to as the Jews. Uh, In fact, even the English word Jew comes from the root word Judah. Uh, So the Jews of today and and Israel of today is made up of descendants primarily of Judah, Benjamin, and a little bit of of Levi. The ten tribes, the northern ten tribes, are gone. They don't exist anymore. They've been wiped out of of history. Uh, What was left of them ultimately became Samaria, 
That's a, in, in the New Testament, that's this multi-ethnic, multi-religious, uh, diverse place that the Jews avoided like the plague. Uh, that's, that's a place you don't go to uh, lest you become unclean. And, and, and the Samaritans were, were this, this mix, this half-breed mix of old Israelites and Babylonians and Syrians and, and people of other ethnicities uh, who, who had been tossed around by the different empires and, and eventually settled in, in that land. And the Jews despised the Samaritans. Now that's why Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, uh, because to the Jews of that day, there, there, were, there ain't no such thing. There is no good Samaritan, or unless, uh, to use the, the, the English phrase, uh, there's no good Samaritan except the dead one, if uh, you remember that phrase that the Westerns uh, used, to, used to always use. Uh, that's how the Jews thought about the Samaritans. Uh, they were just a worthless people. And yet, <clears throat> we are reminded here that God's covenant commitment to the northern tribes has not been forgotten uh, even now. Uh, from here on, the more we read, the more we're going to be tempted, uh, very, very really, uh, we're going to be tempted to just write these people off. There's no hope for them. It's been hundreds of years since they've worshipped God faithfully. They're headed into exile. They're going to disappear from history. It's very tempting to write them off. And that's exactly what the Jews of Jesus' day did. He said, these people are gone. They got God's judgment. They never came back. We should write them off. Uh, And yet here, at this turning point where, where it's starting to head downhill, God reminds us, don't write them off just yet. Though they deserve it, Yet God, for his part, has not forgotten them. Well, what can we learn from that? What lessons might we take home from that? In the first place, we should recognize uh, that the failures and idolatries of God's people do not necessarily automatically cancel out God's love for them. I want to tread carefully here because I don't want to undermine the seriousness of God's threats, God's warnings of judgment. Uh, When God brings people into covenant with himself, there are covenant obligations and there are consequences for breaking those obligations. It is possible to be cut off from God's covenant people uh, forever. And many Israelites were. Uh, There are covenant curses And we see them playing out in in these chapters. And we're going to see that all the more. And yet, God's love and God's concern for those who at least once belonged to him is not automatically canceled out and may well extend long beyond the point where any of us would think God ought to write these people off by now. They are gone. They don't deserve God's mercy, yet God, for some reason, for his own purposes, remembers them. Uh, In other words, nobody may ever say to God, you have no right to care about these people anymore because they've forsaken you and they've gone too far. They cannot be remembered anymore. We don't have a right to say that. God will have mercy on whom God will have mercy God will remember those whom God chooses to remember. 
an application I, I think about here, and again, I want to tread carefully, uh, but we might think of Roman Catholics as, as uh, belonging to somewhat of a similar group. Uh, like the northern kingdom of Israel, their great sin has been centuries and centuries of image worship, which amounts to idolatry. Uh, and, and in many ways, they've been cut off from the covenant. Uh, if, if they have any covenant status at all, it is as covenant Breakers. Now, we do accept their baptism, so uh, that may indicate some sense in which there's still a covenant status, but if any, it is as covenant breakers. Yet, we should not quickly assume that God has just forgotten them, that we should just write them off, but rather, we should pray for them as those who ought to return to the covenant to which at least once they belonged. Uh, don't uh, say to God, you have no right to remember these people. Rather, pray for them that they would return, that the idolatry would come to an end, that there would be repentance. Uh, so here also with Israel, as we enter uh, this new age in Israel's history uh, that's going to ultimately end and then being dragged away into exile, uh, we see God in his inscrutable wisdom and mercy leaving us with this reminder that though he doesn't, uh, he's not obliged to remember them at all, yet he still does for the sake of his covenant. Uh, it, it is a, a profound truth when you think about it. Uh, even though the northern kingdom ceased to exist and became uh, Samaria, this multi-ethnic people, uh, yet uh, when Jesus comes, what's his command to his disciples uh, right before he ascended? After his resurrection, right before he ascended, he gives his command to the disciples in Acts 1, verse 8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Even in that day, Jesus did not forget his people who were part now of Samaria. Uh, you, you, you could easily read that and, and just think nothing of it, but there it is in those words, this, this little reminder that there too are some of my people, Jesus says, whom I have not forgotten, though they have long, long forgotten me. Uh, and the same can be said for, for all of Israel, for, for who we would call the Jews today. Uh, though the Jews have most certainly lost their status as God's covenant people, Paul says that very clearly in Romans 11. They've been cut off uh, from, from that olive tree. Uh, yet, the, the apostle also teaches us that God has not completely forgotten them. Uh, God may yet still have plans and purposes for them. They, they will never be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah whom God has sent. And yet, that does not mean that God has forgotten them. Uh, so Paul says, if, if we, unnatural branches, could, could be grafted onto this tree, how much more could God graft on, graft back on the natural branches which he had earlier cut off? Uh, God has not, or we should not at least assume, that God has forgotten them. Uh, though, they, though they too have been scattered all over the world, they're today much like the Samaritans, a multi-ethnic group from many different uh, backgrounds. Uh, yet, we, we cannot say that God has forgotten them. Uh, they may yet matter to him. He may yet have purposes for them.
And so that's the first lesson that we, we really want to take to heart as we enter this new era in Israel, uh, which, which will look for all appearances like Israel, that northern kingdom is just being finally cut off, cast away for good. Uh, don't forget that God ha- may not yet have forgotten. Uh, secondly, uh, the, the other big lesson we want to pay attention to here is, is in the kings themselves. This is, after all, the book of, of kings. And this chapter focuses our sights, especially on the way that these kings, uh, Jehoahaz and then Jehoash, the way that they relate to and interact with the word of God. Uh, and in this case, especially through the prophet Elisha. Uh, Notice for Jehoash how his entire 16-year reign uh, is is just brushed over in verses 10 through 13. It barely says anything at all about him other than, you know, when he started to reign, how long he reigned, and who came after him. It says he reigned 16 years, did what was evil, died, was buried, and nothing nothing interesting is said about that 16-year reign. And yet, when you come towards the end of the chapter, there is something that's said about this man. The one thing that God wants us to see about King Jehoash is what happened on that day when he went to visit uh, the prophet of God who bore the word of God. Uh, The one thing that matters about this man's life is the way that he interacted with the word of God through the prophet Elisha. And, And the point is clear. That then is what determines the significance of someone's life and reign. Uh, How they interact with and how they respond to the word of God. That matters more than anything else. It's those, those critical encounters with the word of God that make all the difference for our life. And that's not true just for kings. That's true for every single one of us. What determines the the, the eternal significance of our lives? We might be able to list all sorts of accomplishments. I bet that Jehoash would not approve of verses 10 to 13, uh, where it just brushes over his life. He probably would have liked to talk about things he built, uh, organizations he started, uh, different political things that he set into motion. Those don't even get mentioned. The one thing that does, that has eternal significance, is how did this man stand before the Word of God? When he was confronted by the Word of God, what was his response? That's the one thing we get to know. Uh, Was this a person who, who treasured the Word of God? Was this a person who hoped in the word of God. Uh, was this someone like Jehoshaphat uh, and, and, uh, and Jehoiada in chapter 11? People who put their hope in the word of God and stepped forward in faith and courage? Or was this a man of different character? How did he regard the word of God? That's the question that matters. And, and that's the sort of moment then that we witness in verses 14 to 19. This, this very strange story where, where Jehoash goes and visits the dying prophet Elisha uh, in, in his last moments. It's a very strange encounter. So Jehoash is, is weeping over Elisha. And, and as he does so, this old prophet commands him to take a bow and arrows and to shoot them out the window toward the east. And Jehoash does as he is told. So far, so good. He's responding to the word of God in obedience. 
Uh, he does what he's told, and as he stretches out his arms on the bow, Elisha, the old prophet, also places his hands on the hands of the king. And if you just stop there and, and take a snapshot, um, is that not a picture of how, the, how, how a righteous king ought to live and reign? Uh, with the leading and the guiding of, of God's prophet, with God's hand upon him. Uh, in that moment, you see the way a king ought to be. Uh, so he shoots the arrow, and Elisha gives him his blessing. He says that arrow will be a symbol of the Lord's victory uh, over the invading Syrians until they're finally defeated. So far, so good. But then Elisha commanded him to take those arrows, or to take, I guess, some new arrows, um, and strike the ground with them. And here's where it becomes awkward. Uh, Jehoash did what Elisha said. He took the arrows, and he struck the ground with them three times. And then it says, the old prophet became angry and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times, uh, because then you would have struck the Syrian army down uh, and, until you made a good end of them, but now you'll, you'll only strike them down three times. What's going on there? Uh, Elisha didn't tell him to strike the ground five or six times. He just said, strike the ground. Uh, what are we supposed to learn from that? You know, as I read it, uh, maybe you feel the same way. I feel somewhat sympathetic towards poor King Jehoash here because, first of all, it's a very bizarre thing to be asked to do, uh, to grab these arrows and, and hit the ground with them. It, it just feels uh, weird. Uh, and, and Elisha didn't tell him how many times to do it. So why is he now angry? Well, I think he's angry because Jehoash's response, as understandable as it is, as much as we sympathize with it, showed a, a very sad half-heartedness about the word of God. I get that, that, that this man felt silly beating the ground with a bunch of arrows. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Uh, we can understand that he felt that it was beneath his dignity as a king to be on his hands and knees uh, hitting the ground with arrows. Uh, he, he was probably starting to wonder whether the old prophet Elisha was, was getting dementia. Uh, what's going on with that? Uh, but when you read the book of Kings, you actually see this sort of thing more often, uh, where prophets are, are giving strange, almost inexplicable commands. You think of the, the prophet uh, back in, I believe this is 1 Kings 13, where, where he, he tells another prophet, uh, strike me, and, and the other prophet doesn't want to hit him. Uh, and, and then he says, well, then a lion will eat you, and a lion eats that man. Uh, it's a bizarre command, and yet you should have obeyed a prophet of God. You should have listened even when it didn't make sense. Uh, so you see this thing more often where, where these prophets give these strange commands precisely to test the degree to which you take seriously the word of God, uh, to which you are willing to swallow your pride and to swallow your perplexity at what you're being asked to do and just obey the living God. Uh, forget your better judgment. Follow the word of God. That's what I believe we're seeing here. If you think about it, Jehoash knew perfectly well uh, after shooting the, the arrows through the window that these arrows are supposed to represent the Lord's victory. So he got that symbolism. So even as he's beating the ground, he knows the arrow represents the Lord's victory. Uh, as, as awkward as, as it may be to hit the ground with them. Uh, and, and secondly, he certainly knew of the power of God through Elisha. 
He didn't have any doubts that, that Elisha was a prophet of God. He had seen God working through Elisha. Uh, everyone in Israel knew uh, Elisha as a prophet of God. That's why he even calls Elisha the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He holds this prophet in very high regard. So you know this is the Lord's victory, this arrow, and you know that the prophet is the Lord's prophet why would you not then just take that seriously and beat that ground until you break that arrow uh, so that you know that, that you will have the Lord's victory? Yet here, where he's commanded to do something that doesn't make uh, a whole lot of sense, that maybe feels silly, Jehoash falters. He gives a sort of half-hearted Obedience. Uh, an obedience uh, that's pretty much like the obedience that characterized the rest of his reign. A half-hearted obedience that maintains the worship of Yahweh, because the prophets say that's what you're supposed to do. But he refuses to go all the way and remove the, the, the golden calves, remove the ashram. Uh, it's half-hearted worship. And that seems to be why Elisha gets angry. It's the same half-heartedness that Elisha has seen in him, in his father, in his grandfather, in the king that came before him, uh, before Jehu, uh, and in one king after another. It's that same half-heartedness uh, with, with these kings who are happy to worship Yahweh. Uh, and, and they even name their kids with good old Bible names like Jehoash and Jehoaz and, and things like that. But who only take that obedience as far as it makes sense to their own earthly, worldly minds. And when they reach that point where they say, well, yeah, here's where common sense needs to take over and, and religion needs to take a step back, uh, that's, that's the direction that we go. Well, here's the thing. As I think about what this means for us, the principle remains the same. Uh, that the moments that define the course of our lives and the eternal significance of our lives are these critical moments where we stand before the Word of God and must respond. Uh, and oftentimes those moments come when, when the commands of God or the will of God make no sense to our minds. You think of Je, uh, Je, uh, Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada uh, a generation back uh, saving the baby king Joash from the hands of Athaliah. To all earthly minds, that made no sense. It's just a baby. Yes, it's, it's a son of David, and God made promises to David, David centuries ago. But what does that mean uh, to an earthly mind? It's just a baby. Work with Athaliah for now, and maybe if you don't like her one day, you can put someone else there. But they say, no, we must rescue David's, David's only descendant because God made his promise. God gave his word to David. That's faith that stands on the word of God even when it makes no sense to earthly minds. Uh, oftentimes the same is true for us. The moments that define our lives are where we must respond to the Word of God, oftentimes when the commands of God make uh, to, to an earthly mind no sense. Uh, why would you give to the church a 10% tithe? Uh, the world says that's crazy. Uh, you're, you're wasting your money. Uh, why would you make Christian education your highest financial priority next to the church? That's crazy in the world's mind. And yet we obey because this is what God desires of us, even when it makes no sense. 
Uh, many of you who conduct business, you run into this uh, on a daily basis. Why would you conduct your business with, with integrity uh, when, when there are opportunities to get ahead and you pass them by just because you don't feel right about them? That's crazy. Uh, that's how the business world works. You've got to take those opportunities. And yet you stand on the word of God and you say, this isn't right. This doesn't uh, comply with what God asks of me. And so I must follow the word of God. Uh, or, or, so, so that's what we're called to do. And yet what often happens, like Jehoash, is, is that we give God a half-hearted obedience. Oftentimes because we feel silly Obeying God all the way. Uh, Putting our hope and confidence, like our hope and confidence in a God we cannot see. Saying, that's what I will live for, or who I will live for. Uh, To the world, that makes no sense. And oftentimes to our minds, that makes no sense. And so we give it a half-hearted commitment. Uh, Or resting on the conviction, because your faith rests on the conviction that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Your whole faith rests on that belief. To the world, that's crazy. Give it up. Uh, To us, we must say, I will either live for Jesus who died and rose again because I believe he did, or I won't obey him at all. It's it's one or the other. Uh, even, Even little things like singing our praise to God here in church with our whole heart at the top of our lungs. Why do we sing that way to many, even to some perhaps around us, that seems crazy, seems silly. It's just all religious stuff. Uh, The reality is there are people in the Christian church, perhaps in this church, uh, who think that this whole thing, this whole worship service, is as silly as beating a bunch of arrows into the ground at the command of God's prophet. Uh, There are plenty of Christians who are are happy enough to be Christian in name and and, and in culture, uh, like Jehoash, uh, who worship God in their name and in their culture, but who are always making sure they don't take that religious stuff too seriously. Because at the end of the day, it's just religion. Everyone's got his religion. Uh, And as soon as they walk out out of the building, normal life, Real life, you sometimes hear that, real life, as opposed to the Christian faith, uh, goes on and resumes. Uh, So you don't find them talking about their faith in the privacy of their lives, in their own friendships. Uh, Their prayer life is is virtually non-existent. Uh, They wouldn't be caught dead evangelizing, actually sharing the gospel with someone else, because they don't want to be thought of as one of those Jesus freaks. Oh, that's half-hearted obedience. And that's the sort of reaction to the word of God that you find here from Jehoash. He does what the old prophet tells him to do, because this is the old prophet after all. And he hits the ground with the arrows, and you can almost just see him sort of looking up at, at Elisha, like, can this be over now? You know, this, this really feels awkward. I'd really like to be done with this. I feel really stupid uh, beating the ground with these arrows. Well, that attitude toward the word of God ultimately shaped and determined Jehoash's entire reign. God-worshipping in name, but half-hearted to the core, ridden with idolatry and with, uh, with, with uh, every secret high place in the worship of the golden calves, which God had said to remove. Uh, in fact, uh, when you get to the next chapter, in chapter 14, you also notice that he, he uh, once again, like uh, like uh, 
Just like the king of Judah had stripped the gold of the temple, uh, Jehoash actually attacks Amaziah, the king of Judah, and even demolishes a part of the temple. That's where half-hearted obedience, when, it, when it, the rubber hits the road, becomes either obedience or far more often outright disobedience and an assault on the kingdom of God. And that's why Elisha then is angry with this man. Uh, Jehoash had more than enough reason to take the prophet seriously. He had seen with his own eyes the things that this prophet had done. Uh, He and his father and his grandfather and the king before him had seen the hand of God at work in Elisha. But he lacked the heart of submission, that heart of reverence for God that leads to a wholehearted obedience. And we started this this worship service, or our second song, this worship service, we sang to God, I give my whole heart to you. That is Christian obedience. We must either give our whole heart to God or not give it at all. It will, at the end of the day, be one or another. And because he chose the path of half-hearted, cultural, outward obedience only, it made his entire reign and his entire life fruitless. If there's not a warning to us there, then, then, then we're just not paying attention. Uh, the thing that for each of us will shape the course of our lives and the significance of our lives in the kingdom of God for eternity will be the way that you stand before the wor- word of God and whether you stand on it in wholehearted obedience or in half-hearted that ultimately is disobedience. Uh, finally, I want to wrap this up. Uh, I want to just consider briefly then this, this miracle that happens right at the very end of the chapter. We'll be very brief on this. Uh, we don't get to read how Elisha dies, which is kind of surprising given that we see this dramatic closing to Elijah's life. Uh, we don't get to read about the death nor the funeral, uh, but we do get to know he's buried in this tomb somewhere near the, the border with Moab, actually a very obscure place. Uh, and, and it so happened... Uh, presumably some years later, after he's reduced to bones, so it's at least several, uh, at least a year later, uh, that there's a group of Israelites burying a loved one uh, near that same tomb. And as they're, as they're doing the funeral, they see this band of Moabite raiders, and, and they all just abandon the funeral, throw the body into that hole, uh, and, and run. And as the body rolls into the tomb of Elisha, it touches the bones of the dead prophet and comes to life. What in the world do we make of that? Uh, We can start by observing just the power of God located in the man who bore the word of God. God's power is always connected to God's word. Always. Uh, That's clearly something we're meant to see here. So great was the power of God in Elisha, uh, who had asked for a double portion, if you remember, of Elijah's spirit. Uh, So great was God's power in him that even after his death, uh, yet he was still working miracles even more than Elijah did. Uh, So it shouldn't surprise us that Elisha's story doesn't end with him dying and being buried, but yet God's power remains in him. Uh, But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, It's not merely that God wants to show the world how much power he had invested in the prophet Elisha. I believe we're also supposed to see that not only was the power of God still somewhat touching Elisha, but more importantly, the power and presence of God remained within the borders of Israel. 
there God was still at work, even after Elisha was gone. Uh, Though God's power uh, was always tied to God's prophet, the death of the prophet does not mean the absence or death of the power of God. And so Elisha, in his death, teaches us a lesson that I believe ultimately points forward to Christ. Uh, Elisha dies, and in his death, raises one man to life. Uh, He gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the power of God invested in God's prophet. But Elisha is only a forerunner. Now, as we've we've looked at the life of Elisha, this was some time back, uh, so I, I don't expect you to remember it all, but Elisha is the foremost picture of the prophets, the foremost picture of the great prophet Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ was uh, known to have come with, preceded by Elijah, which means he is uh, the picture, the ultimate picture of Elisha, the one to follow Elijah. And we've seen many times where, where Elisha points forward and pictures Christ more than any other prophet in Israel. Uh, and, and so, here also in his death, Elisha was only a man. He died He never rose again, and in his death, he raised one man from the dead. When Jesus Christ died, uh, the tombs broke open, and hundreds came out of the graves on that day. And even that is just a picture, just a foreshadowing of the ultimate resurrection uh, in which all who belong to Christ shall rise from the dead. Uh, The power of God does not end with the death of God's prophet. In fact, it only begins there. Uh, That's what we see with Elisha, and that is what we see far, far more with Christ. Uh, So to wrap this up, uh, as we reach the end of Elisha's life and ministry, we're looking ahead now to some dark days in in Israel. Uh, We're seeing a changing of times, and with that we're going to see some, some dark days. And yet, there are some lessons to be learned here. Lessons about the covenant faithfulness of God who doesn't forget his people even after they forget him, and lessons about the power of God to take the dead and raise them back to life. So, brothers and sisters, take your time this week to dwell on these truths because you and I, though we live in a different chapter, we live in the same story and we know and we worship the same God. Give thanks to him for his mercies, remembering you, though you often forget him. Examine your hearts and your lives so that uh, the fire of God's Spirit would burn away the half-heartedness that characterized so much of the life of God's people in that day. Follow him with a whole heart and remember again that all of our hope, all of our future, all of our life is staked on God's prophet and the power of God through him to raise the dead to life. Amen.